Amen, amen. Hey, open up to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11. Came prepared today. Uh, feel free to turn the air conditioner on. If you don't have a Bible on a copy of God's Word, you can find one in the back of the pew in front of you. We'd love for that to be a gift from us to you. Uh, if you're not familiar with how to use that, you're going to find a table of contents at the front of the Bible. It's going to let you know how to locate the different books of the Bible. Today we're in 1 Thessalonians. And then as you're making your way through, the large numbers are chapters and the small numbers are verses. Listen, we're going to be in a number of different places this morning. It may be beneficial for you just to kind of scribble that down and find it later. If you're struggling to find it, just write the verse down and, and we'll take some time to find it later. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 1 through 11. Paul writes and says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anyone write anything to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into this place as we address your word, as we prepare to learn from you. Help we recognize the significance of the things that have taken place this week. And even as we prepare to observe Memorial Day, God, we are thankful to you for the men and women who have paid the ultimate sacrifice that we might be free. And so, God, we want to honor them. We want to honor their sacrifices. We want to be mindful to pray for their families, for their friends. God, we want to honor all those who sacrificed, even as we praise and worship Jesus who gave the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. God, this morning we encountered the horrific news from the Southern Baptist Convention about cover, covering up sexual abuse. So God, we pray for the victims of that abuse. We pray against those who have perpetrated it. We pray against those who have sought to cover that up. God, we ask that as a convention of churches that we would be those who move towards the light, that we would be those who live in submission to you in all things. Father, this morning as we gather together here in this place, we're mindful of the families today who have lost lives of sons, of daughters, of spouses, of parents in Uvalde, Texas, at the hands of evil. God, help us not to be partisan in our response, but help us to be broken in our entreaty to you as we beseech the throne of heaven on behalf of those who have suffered loss. 
God, we want to come to you. We want to beg your compassion. We want to beg your comfort to be upon those who have experienced loss this week. God, we want to intercede this morning for that community. The stories of heartbreak. As people reflect on what they could have done and what they should have done and how they should have done it. In the moments that matter. God, I pray that they would turn to you. We pray for the churches of that community, the response across the country that as men and women called by your name, that we would constantly be turning people back to follow you. And find your hope, find your security, find your safety, find all that you could be in Jesus. Everything else is shifting sand. Hold fast to the rock. So God, I pray this morning is that we come in, people hurting, people disillusioned, people betrayed, people experiencing dislocation from you, distance from you, enmeshed and mired in sin. Some of us this week, we've had an incredibly close and vibrant week, and we have a sense this morning that you have a special word for us. God, if that's, if that's, one of us in this place, then I pray our hearts will be praying for our brothers and sisters who are far from you today. They cannot remember the last time they were close to you. They've been faking a closeness with you to try and fit in, to not make it awkward. But that today, God, they would lay down all such hypocrisy that they would come before you, a king who loves them, who draws them to yourself. That they might worship you in truth. That they might glorify you being empowered by your spirit to bring you praise. God, would you give us clarity this morning? Your word says this is meant to be a word of encouragement and a word to build one another up, and I pray that that's just what we would do this morning, that we would be built up through the power of this word applied by your spirit to our lives. God, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. So when we got into the the last little bit of chapter four, Paul has turned And he's really heading towards the finish line in this book. And as he's heading towards the finish line, he has in his mind of what's kind of of ultimate importance for them. And it's that they understand the end of all things and what that's going to look like for them and what that's going to look like for God, what God is going to do in the middle of these things. And so you'll remember that as we got to the last verse of last week, he said, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So essentially, there's coming a time when Christ is going to come back. The dead in Christ will rise first. We're going to be there with Jesus. Encourage one another with these words. Man, there's coming a time when Jesus Christ is coming back, and he's coming back bodily. Amen? And this is meant to be a word of encouragement to us. And now he's talking about not the coming back of Christ, but he's talking about this great and powerful day of the Lord when God is going to bring judgment on the earth. Now, I don't know what your experience of this has been. Maybe uh, when we lived in Fort Worth, anytime we'd go to see a movie, we'd park in the parking garage right there by Bass Hall, we'd walk across the street to the Cinemark, and there was always on the weekends a street preacher. I mean, like, it's like this is his time block that he works. And so as he's sitting there, it was always doom and gloom every single week. I mean, it didn't matter. Like, you're going to see Toy Story, you're going to see whatever, like, they, they would ask you, what movie are you going to see? You would tell them, they're like, that's evil. That's the evil of the devil. I mean, and then just kind of spew it out. It didn't matter what you were going to see. It could be Pollyanna Revisited. 
could be the Left Behind series. It did not matter. It could be the Chosen. That wasn't then at the time, but I'm pretty sure they would have said it was the devil if you'd have said that. It was always doom and gloom. It was always the day of the Lord. He was always coming. Now, I remember my first experience of this kind of day of the Lord idea as a kid. There's a movie, and you shouldn't see it, and I was way too young to see it. I was probably six years old, which has done something to shape who I am. <coughs> it's called Omen 2, Damien Omen 2, put out in 1978. I just checked it. It was rated R. What was I doing watching that movie at six? I have no idea. Parents, watch your kids. Watch your kids. My cousins had the satellite, the big one that turned. You got like every channel before they started scrambling. Do you remember those? They make them into hot tubs now. Nevertheless, so I'm, I'm there and I'm watching on this large television with my cousins a movie I don't really understand. I know it has a lot of boys' choirs, so a lot of ah, singing, which, let's be honest, is terrifying. And so we're in the middle of this, and this kid is just straight up evil. Like everywhere he goes, someone dies, and then lo and behold, he turns out to be the Antichrist. I didn't see it coming as a kid for weeks. For weeks after that, if I'm in a church service and they talk about the day of the Lord, I'm, I'm shaking because I'm so scared. When it was time to go to bed at night, I would find the biggest, fattest Bible I could and I would shove it underneath my pillow and sleep on it with one hand like this. Hold me close, Lord. Don't let me be away. I'm thinking songs and making melody in my heart because I want to be close to the Lord and I want him close to me because if Damien shows up, I want him killed. And like for a lot of us, that's our experience in some shade or fashion with what it looks like for the day of the Lord that in the Christians, some of us in our upbringing, in the churches you've been in, what it's engendered in your heart is a fear. But what we see in this passage is that if you are a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then what the day of the Lord spells for you is God coming in wrath to judge the unbeliever and coming in kindness and love to take you to himself. So there's something we need to know about what his coming is going to be, and there's something he reveals to us, to us about how then we should be in the interim. Now Paul told the, the, the brothers and sisters there in Thessalonia, Thessalonica, I have no need to write anything to you. You know all about this, and what you know is that he's going to come, this day of the Lord's going to come like a thief in the night. Now, Matthew 24 is a lot about the coming of the Son of Man, and in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, this is what Jesus says, speaking of this day of the Lord. He says, therefore, stay awake, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, be aware of this, keep this ever present in your mind, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not have left his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. And so what we know from this is that the coming of the Lord is going to happen in an instant. It's going to happen in an instant. He says it's going to be like a thief in the night. When I was early in high school, uh, my grandparents' house was broken into. And, and on the backside of my grandparents' house, they had a sunroom, which was a series of sliding glass doors. And they lived in small-town America, so they never locked anything. And so one night, while my grandparents were asleep, a thief came, and he slid open the sliding glass door. 
And he walked through the sliding glass door, and he walked through the sunroom, and he came out into this area. And so to the left, you turn to go to the kitchen. Straight ahead of you would be the laundry room, and to the right would be their bedroom. And so he made his way into the bedroom, and my grandfather, if you ever heard him sleep, it sounded like a lumberjack at work. I mean, just, I mean, you don't have to be quiet in that, but the thief is in there, and he's kind of tiptoeing along, and my grandfather, every night he went to sleep, he he hung his pants on the bathroom door. The man didn't know what a hanger was, but he hung his pants always up on the bathroom door, and so the thief walked right beside this cacophony of snoring, my grandfather and grandmother doing this. And, and he reached into my grandfather's pants and he pulled out his wallet. And he put it in his pocket and he walked right out of their house. Now the next morning my grandfather woke up and he cleared his throat like some type of dying thing. but Which sounds like me now. But nevertheless, and he reaches in his pants pocket and he pulls out lint. And he, he blamed everything on my grandmother. He said, Linnell, where did you put my wallet? Buddy, I don't touch your wallet. And so back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Well, somebody touched it. Well, it wasn't me. I didn't touch it. Well, somebody touched it. Lo and behold, they realized that their house has been broken into. Like a thief in the night, they were completely unaware. What was once secure and resting feet from him was now gone, was taken, and he was none the wiser of the entry of the thief. This is how he's coming. He's coming like a thief in the night. It's on the basis of this. Look at how, look at what he says is going to be the case for those who don't know Jesus. He said he's going to come like a thief in the night. People are saying there's peace, there's security. My grandfather was sleeping somewhat peacefully. My grandmother was sleeping in the midst of the onslaught of his snores. There's peace and security. In the middle of saying this, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. They will not escape. They're not going to escape. Jeremiah 6, verses 13 through 15, addresses this idea of peace and security. Jeremiah writes, From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From the prophet to the priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah's dealing with this aspect of, of reality that he keeps trying to call people to repentance. He keeps trying to call people to say, listen, we're not living faithfully to the Lord. What we have to do is voice our sin, and once we've voiced our sin, then we turn back to God. The prophets and the priests are going out saying, this isn't a big deal. Peace, peace. Peace, peace. But they treat my people shamefully. They were ashamed when they committed, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush, therefore they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. This idea of of peace, peace, this is what we see in our culture. This is what we see. What we see in our culture is this understanding that when we go to men and women and say, listen, you need to turn from your sin and you need to turn and to follow God, they say, what's going on? All I see is peace and security. Occasionally, they get brief reminders that there is no peace, there is no security. Incidents like the shooting in Uvalde, 
wake us up to the reality that there is no peace, there is no security. Seeing failure over and over again wake us up to the reality that there is no peace, there is no security. But like Pavlov's dog, they have been trained to ring, to, the, to respond to the bell of the false sense of security. They go in and out, they go to work, they come home. They go to work, they come home. Occasionally, they read about something, they learn about something that happened a long ways away from them. And what that does is it reinforces the idea that there's peace, there's security. There's peace, there's security. And there's this thought that gets reinforced in their mind. He's not going to do anything. This isn't real. He's never going to act. Why is he taking so long? Peter gives some illumination to this in 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. God's promise is that he's coming back. Every form of injustice you witness on a daily and weekly basis, our God is going to come back and address that. Everything that you see and you think, dear God, how long? How long are you going to let this go? How long are you going to let this slide? How long until you step in and address, why isn't this happening? Are you slow? Do you not care? Are you unaffected? Do you not move towards the impoverished? He says he's not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you see the grace and mercy of our God there? That at any moment he could peel open the sky and come back, but he tarries, and why does he wait? He waits because your father doesn't believe. He waits because your Husband doesn't believe. He waits because your wife doesn't believe. He waits because your children are in rebellion. He waits because sin has its hold on your heart and he wants to see you move to the other side. He waits because there's a lost person living on Stonewall that even though there are rocks thrown from this church, they've never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. He waits because he doesn't want any to perish, but to all have, a response, all have an opportunity to respond in repentance to his gospel. He is gracious in his waiting. They're not going to escape. See, Christian, you too have been trained to this response of security and peace. You too have a sense that, that there's no urgency for your lost spouse. There's no urgency for your lost coworker. But do you see this? You don't know when it's going to happen. You don't know how it's going to be. It's going to be a thief in the night. It's going to happen in an instant, in a moment. And after that moment, there's no do-over. After that moment passes, he will come in judgment, and he will judge the living and the dead forever. Take every opportunity. Communicate the gospel to the people around you. And call your father today and say, Dad, I know you don't believe. But this is so incredibly true and so incredibly moving in my heart that I want to share this with you one more time. Dad, I'm praying for your salvation. Call your prodigal child again today. Say, listen, we love you. We want you to come home. We want you to follow Jesus. 
We don't want you to live in this false sense of security. We don't want you to live in this false sense of peace. God's wrath is coming, and we want you to be spared. Now, the Christians who are in the middle of this, and, and, and they're wrestling with this understanding because there are those in any community, in every community, who'll say that, listen, you have sin in your life, and this is evident that you're not a follower and a believer of Jesus Christ. And they ask you to base your assurance, they ask you to base the, the solidness of your profession and faith in Christ on something you've done. And so you, maybe you've heard the question posed to you, do you even remember your baptism? Do you even remember this time? Do you even remember what it was like? And you're thinking and you're reeling in your mind and thinking, I don't really remember it. Is this evidence that I'm not really of him? You see, the assurance that comes into the Christian's life isn't on the basis of what I've done. It's not on the basis that I was fully emerged. They didn't get the tip of my nose. What it is based on is Christ's sacrificial death. The assurance of your salvation. Listen to me. Hear me on this. It's based on the good thing Jesus did for you, not on anything you've done for yourself. Do you have faith in Jesus? Do you have faith in Jesus? Having faith in Jesus, Paul moves to address kind of who we are and how this works for us. And so he turns to the church. He says, you're not in darkness, brothers. Notice how he ends there, the second half of verse 5. We are not of the night or of the darkness. In the middle, he tells us our response. He says, for that day to surprise you like a thief, don't be afraid. Don't feel like you need to sleep on a stack of Bibles, ESV, KJV, NKGV, NLT, the message remix, whatever version of it you've got, like the audio Bible's playing at night. You're like, save me, Jesus, save me, Jesus. You don't need it. You already have the work of Jesus finished and fully accomplished for you. There's no Christian superstition that saves you from the coming wrath. What saves you from the coming wrath is the blood of Jesus. He says, it doesn't need to surprise you like a thief. Why? For you are all children of the light, children of the day. Peter addresses this in 1 Peter 2.9, speaking of the church, speaking of us as a people. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you from where? Out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You know something of darkness because darkness is where you came from. You know something of sin. You know something of its allure. You know something of its enticement. You know something of its stain because that's where you came from. Our experience in this life is to be light surrounded by darkness. And so we know something of what darkness is. We know something of what it's like to be enveloped with darkness, but the light has overcome the darkness, and we are overcoming the darkness in so much as we are constantly, always, forever found to be in Jesus. He says, you're children of the light, children of the day. That's who we are. Do you have a sense this morning that that's who you are? Within your mind and, and, and the work the enemy is doing to persuade you, no, there's more darkness than light. No, there's more darkness than light. Look at what you did last week. Look at what you did last month. Listen, listen to what people are saying about you. There is this reminder. There is this sure and steady anchor. There is this ground underneath your feet that does not fail. Cling to the rock. Jesus says, you are of the light, children of the day. 
You're not of darkness, although the enemy constantly seeks to tell you you are. So if we're not of the darkness, if we are children of the day, then what should we do? Look at what he says, verse 6. He describes how we are to be. He says, so then let us not sleep as others do. Let's not be lackadaisical in our approach. Let's not be lazy in our engagement. Let us lean forward. Let us fully engage. Let us give ourselves to this fight. They sleep at night. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake. Paul translates this in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, is let us be watchful. Let us be watchful. Let us be sober. Let us be self-controlled. So what does this look like in the middle of this for us? We are looking and waiting for the return of our Lord. We are anxious in some sense for the return of it. Not anxious as in, I'm not sure how this is going to pan out for me, but anxious as in glad. We're excited about the return of our Lord. Every time you turn on the news, it's an opportunity to rejoice that Jesus is coming back and he's going to set all the injustice straight. Every time we hear someone engage with some type of evil or some type of hatred, it's a reminder to us that there is coming a time when our Lord will return and he's going to set all things straight. Be watchful. Be self-controlled. Your life should be markedly different from the lives of the lost people around you because you are a child of the light who lives in the day. What does the light look like for you? What does the light in you look like to the people around you? Now listen, if you come into this understanding that says, as a Christian, I have a, 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 a baptized worldview, a sanctified, a made holy worldview, and the way that I live, it doesn't make sense to lost people around me. So when I do something good, they don't have a framework to understand it outside of like culturally we don't steal, culturally we don't murder, culturally we don't beat on people. And so they're going to seek to understand it from the framework of what it is to be good and moral and southern. What you are doing isn't good and moral and southern. What you are doing is living a life of, as a child of the light. So one of the things we do is we translate our actions and our thoughts to people who don't speak the language of the gospel. Now, it's much easier. It's much more comfortable to allow them to assume you're just a kind person, a polite person. But what are you doing when you do that? You're refusing to engage with the gospel of Jesus Christ and you are leaving them to stay in the precarious place as a person for whom the wrath of God is coming. Use your kindness to communicate the gospel. <laughs> use your graciousness. Use your manners. When somebody says, well, your mother raised you right, I say, that's right, man. She always took me to church and she taught me about Jesus. And Jesus instructs me to be kind. It's really easy to leverage kindness for the gospel. What does light look like in you? What does the day look like in you? Let us be sober-minded and let us be vigilant. And how are they? He, he describes it, Paul does, in terms of people who go out at night he says, for those who sleep, so those who aren't followers of Jesus Christ, they sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. You know, the first century when Paul writes, streetlights aren't a thing. 
And, and when people engaged in acts of evil, they did it at night because the darkness covered their acts. So if, if you have a night shift and you're like, whoo, he's saying I'm a bad person. That's not what he's engaging in. That's not what he's saying at all. And he's not limiting it really to these only two examples. There is a marked difference between those who follow the leadership of Jesus and those who follow the cultural leadership of the world. This isn't to say that people in the world can't be good and can't be kind. Some of the kindest, most loving people in my life do not know Jesus. It is not their kindness which saves them. It it is not their manners, it is not their generosity. It's not their sweet and loving disposition which could save them from the wrath that's coming. The only thing that could save any of us is the blood of Jesus. He says, they are (coughs) at work at night, they are drunk at night, but then he turns and he begins to address the church again in terms of our equipping and our end. He says, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And quoting out of Isaiah, he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet for the hope of salvation. In Isaiah 59, what we see is that the most amazing thing happens. Isaiah uses this same language to describe the action of God and God's dress. He says says essentially that God looks around and this is how he describes the situation that he sees. He says, justice is turned back. Justice is turned back. And righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. God steps in to act. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render payment. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west. In his glory from the rising of the sun. And he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. Do you know what our hope and protection is in the middle of this? It's being dressed in the Lord. The very armor God took upon himself there in Isaiah 59, he outfits and equips the church for in 2022. He outfits you with a breastplate. And he puts upon your head A helmet. On your breastplate is faith and love, and on your helmet, the hope of salvation. This is what he gives to you. This is how he operates for you. Believer, you are safe in the hands of the Almighty. In the middle of this safeness, in the middle of the safety and the care of our God, some of us will suffer. Some of us will be beaten, others of us will be abused. But our future is secure. Our destiny 
is outside of the destiny of those who refuse to acknowledge the salvation of our Lord. He says, our God has not destined us for wrath. Our God hasn't destined us for wrath, but to obtain obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. For what purpose? So that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Do you catch a sense of what our great God has done in the middle of this? God's purpose and plan for you is your eternal salvation, your eternal safety. If you've made it to a place in your Christianity where this is no longer good news for you, that this is ho-hum, that this is, well, I'm really looking for something more concrete, then you're moving to a place that the gospel doesn't speak. What What is of ultimate importance for you is that God has not destined you to receive his wrath. First John says that Jesus is the propitiation, the propitiatory sacrifice for our sins, as, as if the wrath of God poured out on sins hit Jesus instead of hitting you. And it hits Jesus instead of hitting you because you placed your faith and trust in Jesus. If you do not place your faith and trust in Jesus, you say to the Lord of heaven, I can endure your wrath. The Bible gives us plain evidence, friend, that you cannot. You cannot endure the wrath of God. But Jesus endured the wrath of God for you. He died, the Bible tells us, for us so that we might always be with him. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that it is better to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Listen, if we're awake If we are alive at the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, we will be with him. And every believer in this place right now, the Bible tells us that you are indwelt by his Holy Spirit. You have the very presence of God living in you. There will never be a time from the moment you come to know Jesus through the new, new heavens and the new earth that you will not be within the presence of God. Amen? He's coming for you. And he's coming to take you to where he is. That where he is, you may be also, Jesus tells us in John 14. Then Peter, or Paul rather, gives us this word again. On the basis of this, on the basis that wrath is not coming for you, on the basis that Christ died for you, on the basis that this is how you are meant to be, and on the basis that you will face opposition in this world, encourage one another and build one another up with these words. When your brother and sister come to you and they say, listen, man, life is terrible. I I just don't recognize what's going on. And and, and I don't have a sense that this is ever going to get better. The temptation for us is to ask them, well, what good things are happening in your life? I heard you won the lottery last week. That's kind of a big deal. I was actually coming to ask you for money when you said things weren't great. So now I'm wondering if that was just a lie. Like when they come to you and say, listen, my marriage is falling apart. My kids are running far from the Lord. I've just been, I've just lost my job. Don't seek to address the hurts of their life on some fleeting good thing in this life. 
don't seek to address the hurts of those who have lost loved ones with reminding them of the people still around them. Remind them of the goodness of God. Ask them to rejoice and find strength and be encouraged in what God is going to do and what God is doing right now. Because it will not fail. It will not disappoint. Be encouraged in the Lord. Build one another up in the Lord. He is coming. He is coming soon. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, as we pray, and God, even as the ushers are coming forward to let us take the offering, you give us your word in Revelation. You tell us that the Son of Man is coming soon, and that John even says, even so, come, Lord. There's much evil that we can't address. God, I pray that those of us who have an opportunity to work against the presence of evil would do so. But that we would never call people to put their faith and trust in us and our ability to suppress evil. God, we know the victory is won. We know the promise is secure. Help us to live as children of the light, children of the day. And God, for any in this place and in this hearing, They know in their heart that they do not know Jesus. God, that today would be the day that you call them from darkness and into light. Father, that today would be the day that they seek out somebody at our welcome booth or one of our pastors to talk to to say, tell me how I can know Jesus. God, would you lead us to worship you? Would you lead us to glory in you? to find our strength, security, and safety in you and in you alone. God, we ask you these things in Christ's name. Amen.